Okay. So we're going to be reading one of Paul's letters in the New Testament to a church in Rome called Romans. And to, we're only going to be considering the first five chapters up until December because there's just so much in this book. And today I want to show you from what we're going to have read to us in a moment um, what the Bible says in part about our identity, what the good news message is, and we're going to talk about Toy Story. Um, written in AD 57, and the book, the letter to the Romans, is one of the most influential works of literature in history. Um, some of the major influences in Western civilization, men like St. Augustine and Martin Luther, John Wesley and Karl Barr, all credit this book with having a, a, a transforming power on their lives. And the English poet, a man named Samuel Coleridge, he said, I think that the letter to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. Many of you in the room would, would know and be able to testify to the personal impact that the letter to the Romans and the things that God says in that book has had on you. I know when I, as a student, came across this book uh, and just read it carefully or slowly for a series of days over a period of months, just God used it to do some stuff in me. And I would encourage you as we go through this book together, uh, we've been selling these ESV Romans or journal Bibles at the back, grab one, um, read it slowly, pour this book out into your soul and allow God to use it to change you and transform you. Um, when we say it's, when Samuel Coleridge says it's one of the most influential works of literature or whatever, you can be mistaken for thinking perhaps that it's just another piece of writing, but it's not. It's God's word inspired and powerful for us. In fact, on Wednesday evening, we came here and we, we just read the book aloud together. We had a Romans read-through. And we did this back in Easter with Luke and Acts. We just read it aloud. And on both, of, both occasions, I've been quite surprised by just how simple church needs to be. We read the book aloud. We then sung a song of response. And there was a a very close awareness of God in the room, the presence of God. Um, immediately people felt they had prophetic words or faith for healing or various things. People just wanted to hang around and pray and we were aware that God was speaking to us. The Bible is God's word, his voice to us. And the spirit of God confirms the word of God. And we are a church that longs to be a church known for being passionate about the word of God and passionate about the spirit of God and actually, they work in harmony together. The Word of God speaks, the Spirit of God confirms. And so I, I'd really encourage you to come next time we do something like that, come along. Um, but for the time being, grab a notepad and pen and have some romantic retreats with the book of Romans and allow God to use it to speak to you. In fact, David Nichols has created a set of devotional notes to help us. They'll be on the table as well at the back. Please grab one of them, read along. But for now, I'm going to invite Anne, and she's going to come and read. I don't know why there's scissors up here random. I'm going to invite Anne up here and she's going to come and read for us Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 15. Thank you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, 
among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who have loved, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. This is the word of God. Thanks, Pam. Now this is... Um, not a recipe for making apple crumble. It is a letter written by a man to a particular group of people, and we need to understand the context in which it's, it's written and why Paul wrote it. And I mention it's not, a, it's not a recipe for something because I'm aware there's a tendency that's in the church and certainly outside the church that seems to treat the Bible sometimes as though it is just a, a spiritual tract that we can take to mean whatever we want it to mean. In fact, two weeks ago, I sent a, an encouraging uh, text from a friend who's not a believer, but had come across a commentary on a book in the Bible, and he, he sent me this kind of word for today from this book. And it was a part of the Bible that was very obviously about Jesus, but the commentator had applied it to us and said, you can be like this. You need to be this in the world. This is the hope of the world. You. And I read it and thought, no, you can't do that. This is about him. It's not about us. And actually, Paul starts his letter quite clearly with statements to that effect. Set apart to be an apostle for the gospel of God. And elsewhere, he says, the gospel of his son. The Bible's primarily a message about God. We feature in it because it's addressed to us, but it's a message about him. As such, the gospel is the gospel of God. It belongs to him, it's about him, it's for him, and it's the gospel of his son. And the word gospel is a, is a word that means good news. But in Paul's day, it was understood as almost being like a piece of political propaganda. This is the herald, the announcement of the king. In their day, course the king was Caesar, Nero Caesar. These days we just name our coffee shops after Caesars and we name our sons after followers of Jesus. That's the, the impact of the gospel of Jesus on the world. But for Paul's original recipients, those who are in Rome, they're in the capital of the empire, the capital of the known world, who are familiar with the gospel of Nero and how Nero has brought peace and prosperity to the world. Paul starts his letter by saying, I'm coming to tell you about, I want to write to you about the gospel of God. This is not primarily a message about us, but a message about God. 
It's also not primarily a formula that's to help us get through life. Um, often people have said the book of Romans is it's like faith plus righteousness equals whatever. I don't know if you've seen this often on billboards, out, billboards outside churches. Uh, there's one particularly big one outside a church in East Grinstead. It's on a, quite a prominent roundabout. You drive past it and it always says this, one cross plus three nails equals four given. And we all say, lovely. So Christianity is essentially a formula, a maths book, is it? And that's how we arrange our lives. It's not. This is not primarily a formula a message about a formula. This is a message about a person. The gospel is about God. It's about his son. Christianity is about coming to know him and being known by him and living in relationship with him. And again, this is important because Christianity is not a religion based on technique or on even rituals. We don't get to know God through rituals. We get to know God through the gospel of God declared to us about a historic event given and drawn to enable us to know the person of God. We often in the church can be guilty of making Christianity formulaic or about techniques. Pray like, I've been to conferences and things, pray like this, use these words and you'll see these results. Christianity is not a religion based on technique. It's meant to draw us to a person. Actually, it's not a religion at all, is it? It's a movement. It's a movement based on the teachings and events of a man in history. That makes it very different from everything else. It's not based on some person's insights into how the world should run. It's actually based on an event in history. And the gospel then is an announcement that our allegiances, all allegiances in the world should stop. And all of our allegiances should be paid to this one. God, the gospel of his son. The announcement of the gospel is that he owns everything. He's in charge. He rules and he reigns. Not Nero, not Boris Johnson. Or mind you, Boris Johnson probably wouldn't say he's in charge either. I don't think anyone knows who's in charge at the moment. But it's not that Nero's in charge or that this political power's in charge. It's that he's in charge of everything. And he owns everything. He owns your money. He owns your family, he owns your dreams, your hopes, your visions for your life. Our everything submits to him. Our sexuality, our preferences, what we should do, how, where we should go, how we should live. We surrender and submit it all to him. And this is what Paul's quite clear on. It's the gospel of God concerning uh, his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, that was his, his earthly line. That's where he'd come from. But he was declared to be the Son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the gospel announcement that he's in charge and everything, all nations, all people everywhere ought to obey him, including you, including me. The question is, how is that good news? It's an announcement, it's a proclamation, but in what respect is that good for us? Well, Paul shows this in his greeting. In every letter that Paul writes, he, he starts typically with the same greeting. Uh, in, the, in the Western world, in Rome, the general greeting of the populace was um, a, a word that means rejoice, and it was kier. Every time you'd greet someone, it would be kier, rejoice. In the Eastern world, in the Hebrew world that Paul's from, the greeting would be peace or shalom. 
And so you see this in every letter that Paul writes, including Romans, 1 Corinthians, we've got the same, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he writes to the, the church in Corinth again in his second letter, and he says, grace to you and peace from God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every letter, instead of saying care, rejoice, or shalom, he puts the two together, except he changes the rejoice, which is care, and he uses a similar sounding word, the word grace, which in his language was charis. So instead of care, it's charis, charis and shalom. Charis and shalom, every letter. The letter to the Corinthians, charis and shalom. The letter to the Ephesians, Charis to you and peace, shalom, from God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the church in Colossae, grace to you and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Paul goes on and on and on, every letter. This is how he introduces himself. Grace to you and peace from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, the herald announcement of Christianity is this. Grace and peace from God. And that's significant for us. And I want to show why that's significant as we talk about what it is that we as a church looked at last week and what it is that Toy Story has to teach us. Um, the question that we asked last week was, who are we as a church? We were asking, what is God calling us to be and to do as a church community in Seaford and beyond? But I said, in order to answer the question, what is God calling us to? The question before that is, well, who are we? What's the point of the church here in the first place? And what's, in, what's fascinating, if you're a Bible geek like me, what's fascinating about the way Paul opens this, this letter to the Romans, this is the only time he does this. In all of his letters, every other letter, he says, Paul, you know, I'm, a, I'm an apostle, I've been sent by God, grace and peace to you. That's how he introduces himself time and time again, except in this one instance. In this one instance, this is what he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. A servant of Christ Jesus. The only letter that he introduced himself like that. That's curious, isn't it? That's, a, that's an interesting fact. Why would you do that, Paul? Well, in, our, I mean, in the English, the word servant sounds very, you know, mild. And we can imagine people who, I'm a servant. I'm just a servant. But in Paul's day, of course, that, that word wasn't the word servant. It's the word that's properly understood as slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Now, again, the context is important. He's writing to Rome, the capital of the empire. If you know the Jesus story at all, you'll know that on Good Friday, he was condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, who was a governor of this Rome, this empire. So Paul introduces himself as a slave of a condemned criminal that your empire condemned as a criminal and crucified. And the reason that Jesus was crucified wasn't because he he did and said lovely things. He was, a, he was crucified as a criminal because the Roman Empire understood his message to be a message of insurgency and revolution. Jesus was condemned as one who was trying to overthrow Rome. It's a bit like if I, if I went, wrote a letter to the White House and said, I am Jez, a slave of Osama bin Laden. I'm a slave of ISIS a slave of the people or the person who's trying to overthrow your empire, the person that your empire has condemned. Paul says, I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. The first thing you need to know about me, Paul says, and he's writing to a church that he's never met. He didn't plant this church. He's only heard of what's going on in Rome. The primary way of introducing himself, who am I? 
I'm a slave. And this is interesting because when it comes to answering the question for us, who are we as a church, who are we as individuals, what we see from Paul's example, I think, is that who you are can really only be answered once you've established whose you are. To whom do you belong? You see, your and my identity is, we don't realize it, but it's largely, of course, dependent upon whose we are, where we've come from. My parents are white Europeans, so no matter how much I I might love the idea of being a, a black African man, I have no say in that, because that's not whose I am. I haven't come from there, therefore this is who I am. I can't change that. There are things about the way you look that you think, I can't change that because of whose I am. I might have aspirations of being this, but I'm this because of them. And as a result of that, our freedoms are restricted. I mean, you know this, if if you work for the state, for example, you work in the public sector, you are not your own. You are theirs. Who you are as a teacher, who you are as the way that you should bring discipline, who you are in healthcare, the things you're allowed to do and say and be, it's dependent upon whose you are, who's paying your wage. I'm theirs. Who we are as a British citizen. Now, as a British citizen, I have uh, a passport that means I have access to 183 different territories around the world. If I came from Afghanistan and had an Afghani passport, I would have access to only 24 different territories around the world. Whose you are shapes the way you live, the certain freedoms you have, the privileges you have. The big idea here is that none of us are free. You are not free to decide to be who you are. You are tied to something that impacts upon you. If you're Uh, a woman in this room and you are married, the chances are good that you understand this better than a lot of the men. You understand a lot of things better than a lot of the men, let's be honest. But this is one of those things because every woman, particularly in traditional societies, who gets married has to lose their name, lose an identity marker that they've carried with them for 18, 19, 20 plus years. This is who I am. And then suddenly you enter marriage and you have that, that wrestling. That, Do I really want to be named after him and his household? I don't like his mum. <laughs> I don't want him to, to behave like his dad. I don't want that family. But every woman has to have, have that process. And the hope, of course, in, in everyone's heart is, oh, he loves me so much he recognizes he's also leaving his family behind and he's not just going to sit around and play PlayStation all day, is he, are you? You're actually now going to be part of our home, our family, our name. But nevertheless, who you are is named for you by whose you become. And there are are several terrible examples. We perhaps know friends who, you know, the woman had this beautiful English name or this beautiful um, Italian or kind of exotic name that just sounded, rolled off the tongue. And then suddenly they get married and they're like, my name's Smith. (laughs) That's my surname. Great. And this is where we come to Toy Story. And this is why this matters. Because uh, if we put this picture up here, Toy Story 4, out this past summer. We have a character that was introduced in Toy Story 4 called 
Forky? Yeah, he made out of a spork, um, which is, does wonders for single-use plastics, because now kids everywhere are buying single-use plastics and making toys out of them. But in the film, um, this little girl on the, right here, on the left here, she's called Bonnie, and she makes a toy for herself out of a plastic fork to comfort her. And when she's gone, the toy comes to life and is part of the entire toy gang, including Woody and Buzz and the rest, if you don't know the films. Um, and the film, in, there's a, a plot in the film about Forky learning to accept its identity. You see, Forky understands, I'm single-use plastic. I'm just a bit of trash. I belong in the bin. Once someone's used me, I get thrown away. However, Bonnie has bestowed love and ownership upon Forky. This sounds very strange, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can hear myself saying it going, this sounded good in my head. But in public, stay with me. Bonnie has bestowed her love on this fork, and so this fork is no longer just a piece of trash. Now this fork is a, is a loved toy. And there's this whole plot in the film about how they've got to help the fork accept the fact that it is no longer trash. It is a loved toy because Bonnie has loved it. And to be honest, you see this theme in Toy Story often because the, the owners of the toys write their name on the shoe of the toy. And so often they remind one another, you belong to Andy or you belong to Bonnie. That's your identity. Whose you are decides who you are. So Forky spends all of his time wanting to run into the bin, and the others spend all their time trying to grab him out of the bin and say, you're not trash. You're a toy. You're loved because someone has set their affection upon you. The message of the film and the message of Toy Story has been that for three or four films. However, the film Toy Story 4 gets confused, um, as you are probably right now. It gets confused because at the end of the film, Woody, if you haven't seen it, apologies. Uh, what? Spoiler alert. At the end of the film, Woody has to make a decision. Do I return to my group of toys or do I follow my heart's desire and run off with Bo Peep? Uh, this other toy. <laughs> I mean, what cowboy has never experienced that um, frustration or big question in their lives? And so Woody's faced with this decision. Do I return to the gang with Forky and Buzz and Jesse and all the others, or do I follow my heart's desire and run off with Bo Peep? And the message of the film up until that point has been, you're a toy whose you are determines how you behave. You are a loved toy. You're not a piece of trash. You are a loved toy by Andy. You belong to him. You belong to Bonnie. That's who you are. And then the film takes a turn for the strange when instead of saying, you are who's, who loves you, you are who you belong to, it says, Woody, what's in your heart? You are what the voice in your heart tells you you are. And Woody at that point says, you're right. And he leaves his friends and runs off with Bo Peep, never to be seen again until Toy Story 5. <laughs> That's the message of the film, but what's interesting is that that is increasingly the message of society. It used to be, you belong to God. You were created by a loving Father. Now live for Him. Now, increasingly, it's you are what you feel yourself to be. And if you want to live like that or you want to behave like that, go and do it. So for Paul to introduce himself first and foremost to the church, saying, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus, is a reminder to those of us in the church that that's also who you are. 
He writes this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, um, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So you may sit there and think, I feel like trash. I feel like rubbish, garbage. I, sh- I feel like I should just be thrown away. I feel like I'm not very impressive, I'm not very important. No one loves me, no one likes me. I don't have any gifts. I don't know what to do with my life. You might sit there spiraling because of how you feel. But the message of the Bible, the message of Paul is... But whose are you? Because you don't belong to yourself. So regardless of how you feel, you are a slave of the Lord Jesus. He has purchased you at a price. In fact, the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a a foundational Christian document written in the 16th century, the opening question is, what is our only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? What is the thing that's going to bring you satisfaction, peace, comfort, and joy? What is it? A full bank account? A loving spouse? Lots of friends? Living in Seaford by the beach? Sunshine? Being able to travel? Owning second properties? Having a nice car? What is your only comfort? Not being that? Not being that? Well, what if you are that or you are? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer they came up with in the 16th century is the answer that's relevant for us today. It's the answer that Paul starts with. This is this. Your only comfort in life and death is this, that you are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully purchased you. He has paid for all your sins, and he has delivered you from all the powers of the devil. That's whose you are. That's why this is a gospel. It's good news, because there are tyrants in the world. There's tyrants in the political stage. Of course there are, but those are only kind of manifestations of the tyrants in the world in your heart. Things that would own you, things that would enslave you, things that would dictate your life's journey. And the gospel announcement, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus is this. You're a slave of his. If you put your faith in Jesus, you transfer from being a slave of your desires a slave of the society that you're in, and you move to being a slave instead of the Lord Jesus's. That's who we are, church. So I asked the question last week, what's God calling us to do in the future as a company of people? The answer is, well, we're not our own, so we don't get to decide, actually. We belong to him. And when a church forgets whose it is, it very quickly forgets what it's for. The purpose of church is not to have nice coffee or even to make friends. I think in our society, we, we have tended to elevate the, I mean, having a close friend is a beautiful gift. But primarily church is not just about come to church and you'll find great friends. You'll be part of a family, a family with a father. And we do what the father tells us to do in this world because we belong to him. We're to be those who declare and announce the gospel of God, not the gospel of self, because there's plenty of gospels of selves in the world. You can do this. You are awesome. You are a snowflake. This is me. You are brilliant. The gospel of God is you're a slave of his. You belong to him. And that's why Paul begins his letters, all of his letters, with that same phrase, charis and shalom. Grace and peace. You know, Jesus is out in the world saving people, drawing people to himself. 
He's looking for churches and companies of Christians that he can add those people to and say, they belong to me. They're mine. They own, they bear my name in public. They call on my name in private. You know, this past um, few months, I got to know someone who told me that for, for 50 years or so, um, they said, I've wasted my life as a cocaine addict. And try as they might, they couldn't get free, destroyed their close relationships and their families. And then he said, at my lowest point, I wasn't a Christian, I describe myself as a believer, but at my lowest point, I called out to Jesus and I asked Jesus to help me. He said, it was as though someone opened up my ribcage and took this black mass out. And he said, since then, I've never had a taste for cocaine. He's been clean for several years and his life's repaired itself. And why do I tell you that? I tell you that because he's not part of a church community yet. All he knows is that Jesus has saved me. What he needs now is to belong to a group of people who are owned by Jesus as well, who tell him, listen, who we are is dependent upon whose we are, and he is leading us, and he is teaching us, he's training us, he's enabling us to say no to the things of the world that aren't good for us. He's who we've owned as our master, as our father, as our king. We bow to him. Come and journey with us. And I've met several people in the last few months who I would describe as being similar to this man who's not part of any church community, but he knows Jesus is powerful and Jesus has saved him. And it's our role in the world as saints to understand that we belong to him, whose we are, so that God can look at us and say, here's a company of people who know what they're about. Join them. I mean, that was the Great Commission. Jesus, before he left, he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How do you make a disciple? teaching them, every, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's a journey. We move from here to there, and the way we get there is we understand whose we are. And that's why Paul can say charis and shalom, combining the East and the Western greetings into one Christian greeting that says grace. Grace is the overflowing abundance of God's kindness expressed in Jesus. Everything in life is a gift and act of grace. And as Christians, that's the pillar and foundation of our lives, grace and then peace, because we belong to one who has spoken peace to us. Human race is at war with God, railing against him, fighting him at every turn we can in order to build empires of our own. And this God has come and said, peace, charis and shalom wholeness, recovery, restoration. That's who we are. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Those who are here to announce and been set apart for the gospel of God. The good news message that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the scriptures concerning Jesus. That's the first verse of Romans chapter 1. Let's carry on. Let's pray. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, help us to grasp that for what it means for us as a church. Who we are depends on whose we are. And I ask you to help us to grasp that as individuals. Who we are depends on whose we are. Not on how I feel. Not on how successful I am or how well life is going, 
not even on how holy I think I am, how much I pray. We are yours. You have set your seal of approval upon us and you have spoken those two words to us, charis and shalom, grace and peace. Oh, Father, let us live in the good of that and let us plumb the depths of that all our lives. Amen. We're going to respond together this morning by breaking bread. There's a couple of tables here, one at the back. Um, there's gluten-free bread at the back and uh, not this side, but not this side this morning, just so you're aware. But we're going to respond together and use this as an act of worship. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. If you're a follower of Jesus, you describe yourself as a Christian, please come and partake of the meal that God has offered to us to help us remember what Jesus has done for us. If you're not yet a believer, if you're exploring, you can feel free to sit this one out and engage with the, the music. But let's stand now, church, and respond to God together.